So my wife says it all the time, and it's beautiful. She, she always says you can't have a testimony without a test. Kind of feels like the biggest responsibility I have in my world right now is trying to be an awesome parent. Really, I believe forgiveness is more for us than it really is for the other person. I kind of firmly believe that everyone is capable of and deserving of empathy, but I do believe it is a muscle that you have to exercise. The full quote is, if you come to a great chasm in life, jump, it's not that far. Because I feel like you never really stop growing. And if you have stopped growing, like you're already dead in the water. You know, stagnation is synonymous to death. You are now embarking on the imperfect experience. everyone and welcome back to another episode of the imperfect pod this week's guest is alan stein jr alan teaches proven strategies to improve organizational performance creative effective leadership increase team cohesion and collaboration and develop winning mindsets rituals and routines a successful business owner and veteran basketball performance coach he spent 15 years working with the highest performing athletes on the planet this includes nba superstars like kevin durant steph curry and kobe bryant In his corporate keynote programs and workshops, Alan reveals how to utilize the same approaches in business that elite athletes use to perform at a world-class level. He delivers practical lessons that can be implemented immediately. His clients include American Express, Pepsi, Starbucks, and numerous college athletic programs. The strategies from Alan's book, Raise Your Game, High Performance Secrets from the Best of the Best, are implemented by corporate teams and sports teams around the country. His inspirational words are featured on 12-foot mural outside the Penn State Football Training Center so that players run past it on their way to practice every day. On this episode in specific, we talk a lot about how masculinity and, and sports are dependent on each other and how you know training young teenage athletes is part of a role to make men better and how those can go hand in hand, as well as in his personal life, him being a co-parent of his children with his ex-wife. You're going to find a lot of value out of this conversation. I believe that a lot of the ideas and methodologies that are used to translate top performers and their mental state and mindsets can really help men better themselves and really progress in that way as well. So I really hope you take a lot out of this episode and I look forward to hearing your thoughts. And we'll get into the episode now. Alan, I'm very happy for you to be here. You know, before we kind of go into a bit about who you are and whatnot, I always like to start off my podcast with the same question is, if there is one person, dead or alive, who you'd like to have over for dinner, who would it be and what would you cook for them? Oh my goodness. Well, I think the the first problem would be me cooking. Now, it's a skill set that I've been able to improve a little bit during this coronavirus quarantine period, uh, but overall, that is definitely not one of my best skills. So my I would more than likely, if I had an amazing guest come over, uh, would probably have to pick up some awesome takeout just to make sure that I, I treat them right. And boy, you know, I'm fascinated by so many different people in so many different walks of life. It would really be tough to narrow down. I know there's, there's two things that fascinate me, and then I will answer your question. One is people that have been able to perform at the highest of levels. Part two to that is people that have been able to perform at the highest of levels for long periods of time. You know, so if you take somebody like a Tom Brady, or obviously if it's recent passing, but you said dead or alive, a Kobe Bryant, 
or Jay-Z or Oprah Winfrey or Warren Buffett, you know, anyone that's been at the top of their game for multiple decades, I just think would have so many fascinating stories uh, and so many things to, to learn from. Since I have had a chance to meet Kobe before, I think I'd go with Jay-Z. I'm a, I'm a huge hip-hop uh, aficionado, and, and I love the way Jay-Z grew from not just being a hip-hop artist, but basically the entire business mogul. And, and I think he, he'd be fascinating to have conversation with, uh, as well as you know the fact that he's married to someone that's an equally high performer uh, and an equal brilliant business mind as well. So I'll go with Jay-Z. Yeah. And in regards to what you would talk to them about, what would it be? Would it be about their performance? Would it be more about how they they got there, who they are as a person and how that kind of transformed in, into who they are today? Like what would kind of be your focal point in terms of that conversation? It would be a little bit of all of the above. You know, I would want to know what makes them tick. What was their inspiration? Where, where would Jay-Z, where does he derive his innovation and his creativity? He's another guy that I think has constantly reinvented himself you know, he's someone that appears to have a really good pulse on culture. Like he kind of knows what's cool before we know what's cool. And then he does it and we all realize that's cool. So it'd be a little bit of everything. Uh, I, I love stories. You know, I, I like being a storyteller. So I'd want to, I'd want to hear stories from him that I think would just be incredibly fascinating. Yeah. Perfect. And then the follow-up question to that is what is the book that has most inspired your life? I've been a very voracious reader since college, and there have been several books that have, that have totally changed my perspective. I'm a diehard Coach K fan, the head coach of Duke basketball, and one of his first books was called Leading with the Heart. And, and I still, to this day, consider it the best book ever written on building a team dynamic and team culture. So I would say that one jumps out as, as really changing my perspective on a lot of things and, and confirming a lot of convictions that I had. But I could probably give you a top 20 list of books that I've read multiple times and would highly recommend. Perfect. Yeah. And I know you have your own book, but now is a little bit of a time to kind of say who you are, what you do for the audience and whatnot. Sure. Well, I guess on, on a personal side, I'm a, a very amicably divorced father of three. I've got 10-year-old twin sons and an eight-year-old daughter. My ex and I get along really well and make great co-parents. And I really enjoy being a father. I'm a former basketball performance coach. So I spent almost 20 years working alongside, working with, and working for the best players in the game, you know, guys like LeBron James and Kobe Bryant and Steph Curry and Kevin Durant and had a chance to, to, to learn some really amazing mindsets and rituals and routines from those guys. And then four years ago, I, I decided to leave the basketball performance training uh, space and become a keynote speaker. And as you mentioned, an author of a book. So what I do now is I take all of the stuff that I learned on the court and I show people how to apply those to business and to their life mostly through speaking and through writing. Uh, I've had to get creative now that, you know, speaking has been put on ice for the next several months. But, uh, you know, th those are really the platforms of what I do. But at my core, I consider myself a, a servant leader. And I like to say I like to fill people's buckets. You know, I like to give people tools and strategies for them to raise their game in whatever they're trying to improve at. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful way of putting it. And I, from watching your uh, some of your keynotes on YouTube and, and videos on YouTube, I can definitely say that I leave those very inspired. And I just wanted to say that because I, I like your voice for one is just like so soft to me. Like it's like an amazing, like inspirational uh, voice. So I, I want to point that out for sure. But also I wanted to talk about, you know, you're, you've been around high performers. You, you just said that, like, that's what you look for when you want to be around people. And so you've been able to learn a lot of things from these higher performers. What is the importance in terms of, of who you are as a person and, and what you grew to be as a person? What influence did being around high performance have to do on who you are today? Well, I think the biggest influence that, that 
my in my life has been the fact that I've always been able to do what I'm passionate about. And, and basketball was my first identifiable passion. I fell in love with the game at four or five years old. And here four decades later, I consider, you know, to be very fortunate, but I've also found that that's in alignment with, with high performers, you know, the high performers I've had a chance to be around love their craft. They love their vocation. You know, if they were athletes. They loved their sport. If they were in the business world, they either loved their product or service, or they loved the sport of business and the ability to serve others. So passion is definitely one through line that kind of, you know, all high performers. And, you know, that was kind of my conduit into having access to some of those guys was just following my own passion. Uh, I think the best advice I've ever been given, you need to find what you're really passionate about, find what you're really good at, and then find where those two things intersect. And wherever those two things intersect, that point of intersection, that's your strength zone. And the more time you can spend in your strength zone, the happier, more fulfilled, and more successful you'll be. And just remember that over time, that intersection may change because you'll develop new passions and you'll develop new skills. So for me, that point of intersection was always basketball performance until recently where that you know became keynote speaking. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really interesting there that um, you talk a lot about passion, but I wanted to also go back to kind of, you know, the first thing that you pointed out to me when you said describing yourself was the personal life. And you talked about how you are co-parenting in a divorce relationship. And I think that is something that, you know, we can, we'll get to the basketball stuff a bit more later and, and, and that, but I really want to go deeper into that because, you know, a lot of the times I've talked to a lot of, the, you know, both children of divorced uh, parents, as well as divorced parents on my podcast. And I think that is a huge angle for masculinity and manhood and and how that really affects a lot of people. But I don't think I've ever talked to someone who's been really in a a successful co-parenting relationship before. So I I really like that you point that out. And I like to kind of go deeper with you on that. And I guess going from both how you said you're in a great relationship with someone that you went through a divorce with, you know, that's not always the easiest thing. Kind of what is, what was your approach to that? How did you get through that as a, as a couple? And I guess kind of what was the reason, or I guess the divorce in the first place, like how did that come about if you're still so amicably successful? First and foremost, we got professional counseling and went through some therapy uh, in order to kind of navigate the process because divorce wasn't, it wasn't normal for either one of us. My parents to this day have been married for 46 years and her parents have been married for 50 years. So divorce was something new for both of us. So we wanted to have, in this case, what we would call a professional coach to help guide us through that. Uh, I believe the reason we're able to be amicable now is we can both admit that we were never a good fit in the first place. You know, I have very high empathy for folks that, you know, one person heavily wants the divorce and the other person feels like they're losing the love of their life. Or if there was some type of abuse or some type of infidelity, like we didn't have any of that. We simply uh, probably rushed the process of getting to know each other and rushed the process of getting married and then just realized we weren't a good fit. And no different than, you know, if, if you apply for what you think is a great job and you're on the job for a couple of years and you realize this company's not really a good fit for me, you can probably leave on pretty amicable terms at that point. So I think that certainly helped. But then the next thing that helped was both of us realized that we had children and that it, it wasn't our children's fault that we got married and it wasn't our children's fault that we were getting divorced. So we need to put them first and do everything we could, you know, to make sure that they would grow up to be happy, well-adjusted contributors to this world. And we made decisions based on the fact of what we thought would be best for them. Thankfully, We both agree that one of the best gifts we can give our children is for each of us individually to truly be happy and fulfilled and be our best selves, that that's the best thing we can do. And I know that's contrary to what a lot of people think. 
a lot of people stay in bad marriages because they think that that charade is actually good for the kids. When in my opinion, it's not, you know, kids, our, our kids could tell that we were not a good uh, husband and wife combo. And we just acknowledged that and decided to find a way to, to break amicably and, and be great co-parents. And our, our kids would never question how much we love them or how much we support them. Yeah. I really wanted to go into kind of what you talked there about how the kids could sense it. In my conversations with people, a lot of young men have been able to be like, I saw that there was anger or hatred or distaste from my relationships towards each other. And, and it's really wonderful that, that you didn't have that. It's kind of just this realization that maybe you rushed into it or something. But I also liked how you talked about how you went through counseling through it. And I think that admitting that you need help to go through that as much as it's like, you know, Kevin Durant and all these, these superstars that you work with still have different coaches for different trainings and different abilities that they go through. And I've had conversations with my friends saying like, as soon as I get engaged with someone or, you know, I, I know I'm dedicated to that person. I actually want to start doing marriage counseling, like from the start because I, and they're like, but you don't have any problems yet, but it's like, I know I'm going to have problems with them. Like that's just a, a natural thing that happens in long-term relationships. And so what would kind of be your advice to people looking for both therapy in their personal life and in a, in a, I guess, in a marriage or, or a parenting role? Well, you, you just hit on it brilliantly. I mean, it's not that you can ever prevent arguments or adversity or challenges or disagreements, but you can work towards reducing their occurrence and certainly reducing their severity. You know, we, we have this mindset for some reason, there's always been this stigma attached that therapy and counseling are something you go to after you've had a problem. That doesn't make much sense. Why would you not do it to help reduce the chance of a problem? Any relationship, it doesn't matter if it's parent to child, spouse to spouse, friends, siblings, work, I mean, they're all going to eventually have some type of issue. And, and I look at therapy more as learning the skills to be able to, and tools to be able to navigate a healthy relationship. And, you know, uh, one of the reasons I was excited to chat with you is, you know, your focus on masculinity. And, and I think, unfortunately, especially here in the States, that emotional intelligence, vulnerability, and going to see a therapist are three things that have long been considered not masculine. And I actually disagree with that. I actually think those are three signs of being hyper-masculine, but part of it's trying to redirect that narrative. I know lots of men that would not go see a therapist because they, they don't think that's something men are supposed to do. And, and I wanted to change that for myself, but I certainly wanted to model that for my twin sons. Mm-hmm. How, how come you think that still exists when a lot more people are being publicly open about it? A lot more people are are sharing that their vulnerability and authenticity. It's a huge thing that we're seeing a lot of celebrities do. We're seeing a lot of sports stars do with like DeRozan, Kevin Love for, for basketball, LeBron James, like even just being so openly committed in his relationship to his wife and, and family. Like how come do you think that's, that stigma still exists today? Well, I think it's slowly changing. It just takes time. Uh, I think if you and I have this conversation uh, 10 years from now, the pendulum will have swung much further in the other direction. And I think it'll be much more acceptable and considered masculine. You know, these things are, they're cycles and they take time. You know, on some level, to some degree, we all end up adopting many of the mindsets that we had from our own parents. So, you know, I'm 44. My parents are in their early 70s. So, you know, I'm growing up in the, the early 80s. And in the early 80s, you know, things like therapy weren't near as talked about or near as, you know, people were not doing that near as often. So it takes time. So now the cycle is going to be me showing my children that that's okay. So that when they grow up, that becomes the norm for them. And then they do that with their children. 
well, it's going to be another 20 years before my children start having children. And so I just think some of those things take time. But I, I think we have made great progress. I also believe it's it's kind of the company you keep. So one of the things that I've tried to do is, is surround myself with an inner circle of people that believe in things like therapy and counseling and believe in vulnerability and, and believe in emotional intelligence. You know, I'm a big fan of James Clear and his book, Atomic Habits. And one of the things he talks about in his book is that you should always surround yourself with people that do that they're doing as normal what it is that you're trying to do. So if, if we're trying to become physically fit, you should surround yourself with people that are very physically fit, that eat well, that exercise, that get sleep. Because if you hang around people and that's their baseline and that's their norm, there'll be less friction when you try and do it. So I'm very particular about who I surround myself with. And I'm around people that believe in vulnerability, believe in emotional intelligence, and believe in things like therapy as a way to grow. Mm -hmm. And how has that served you in your life in terms of your success? Was that something that you realized um, in terms of that vulnerability, authenticity? Was that something you realized later in life and then became to use it to your advantage? Or is that something that you inherently knew when you were younger that you could use to your benefit? Definitely later in life. In fact, I, I joke that, you know, my divorce was the best thing to ever happen to me because it led me to therapy and therapy changed everything for me. I do believe I had the raw materials to become a, a you know, a, have a good heart and to be a good person and perform at a high level, but I was severely lacking self-awareness. Uh, I was severely lacking certain emotional intelligence tools uh, that therapy, you know, going for a couple of years, this is not, I went for one or two sessions and everything was great. I went weekly for almost two years, but it, it allowed me to see some blind spots that I wasn't privy to and certainly helped me develop some tools that have just helped in every single area of my life since. Mm -hmm. And was that more from being able to unlock what you were kind of afraid to go into at one point, or is that just like them asking the right questions? A little bit of both. You know, one of the things I loved about my therapist, and I would assume this is probably a trait of great therapists, they never tell you what to do. They just continually ask insightful questions and you have to come up with your own answers. And I think part of the reason, not only do you have to be, you know, internally reflective, but then you also can't place blame on anyone. You know, all of the decisions I made, they were decisions that I made. She didn't tell me to do something and I did it. It was a decision that I made. Therefore, I had to hold myself fully accountable. But I think a lot of people, you know, the reason they lack self-awareness is they resist and they suppress their fears and their insecurities and their weaknesses and, and the things they're embarrassed about. And if you're with a good therapist, all of those things will come to surface so that you can own them. And, and ultimately, that's basically the definition of vulnerability. It's it's being able to take the mask off and stare all of those things right in the eye. And, and there's nothing easy about any of that work, but it's incredibly fulfilling and certainly very impactful. Yeah. And I think that's so such a, a important point there too, in terms of taking off the mask and realizing that and kind of going into that place of darkness. My mom always said this phrase that, you know, behind closed doors or who you are at home is who you really are. And I've always kind of felt that to be true because you can be like this light, bright, shining person outside of, outside of your home when you're not surrounded by your family, but when you're with those closest to you and whatnot, like who you are in your marriage is going to be most likely who you were at home because that's kind of what you form into. And so as a young man, I try to always become a better version of myself at home, even though it's really hard. And, you know, I think this COVID situation that we're currently in 
is making a lot of people have to focus on or, you know, work on that. And one of the things that I think one of the reasons why it's so easy for suicide rates to go up, obviously with the economic crisis, but there's also just when you're home alone, especially for people that are alone, you're almost forced to go to those darker places of your mind. And that can be really scary for a lot of people. So I guess in terms of like, what are some things that kind of got you through? Because you're obviously a very out, uh, positive person. Some of your videos are, you know, focus where your feet are. That has been a huge part of your life. And so what kind of would be some some tips and advice you'd give to people kind of feeling those anxieties, I guess, right now? Well, well, first and foremost is to realize that you're not alone, that there's a lot of people that feel those types of feelings, especially now with the current landscape of the world, like things like anxiousness and worry that's almost becoming normal. Like those are normal human emotions. So you shouldn't try to resist them or fight them. And you're certainly not the only one that has them. The other thing I'd say is be patient. It's okay to experience these things and don't compare yourself to anyone else when it's, you know, hey, I've already gone to 20 sessions. I should be past this now. Well, there is no normal necessarily. So you need to work through things at your own pace. I also believe in, in giving yourself some grace and some compassion. You know, we're usually most people, and especially high performers, are usually a lot harder on themselves than they are on other people. So I try to say, you know, treat yourself the same way you'd treat a, a loved one or a good friend. You know, if, if you came to me and, and you said you were feeling anxious or worried, you know, I would want to comfort you. I would, I would want to be there and, and let you know that I cared about you and I was supportive. You know, I wouldn't give you a hard time about it. Many people, when they feel those things internally, their self-talk and their self-dialogue is they give themselves a hard time. Now, they go, what's wrong with me? I can't believe I feel this way. So having those types of mindsets, have some grace, show some poise, show some patience, and just know that you're not alone, hopefully can help people weather any adversity or crisis, but especially this specific one. Mm -hmm. And I think those are beautiful words. And and I know that you talk a lot about mental toughness and and the relationship with you have with, you have with yourself are very important aspects of that. And I I think that would be a really cool idea to go deeper into right now because I think just in the in the realm that we're in currently, it's just so important to love yourself. And I I always tell people if you don't love yourself, nobody else will. And it's kind of not to say that you know no one loves you if you don't love yourself but i am able to really appreciate the love they have for me because i have that self confidence i have that self assurance and it's not to be cocky or anything it's not but it's like with star players they have to not care what the fans say and because of there's so much like noise and and everything around them they really have to find that inner critic is most important kind of what you said like they're hardest on themselves so kind of what are your thoughts on mental toughness and how can people get more mentally tough well uh, before I answer that, the as far as the internal dialogue, I mean, the, the conversations that we have with ourselves internally is the most important conversations we have in the world. And yet many people don't treat those that way. So what you tell yourself on a daily basis, I mean, if, if you constantly tell yourself, I am good enough and I deserve this, you know, then you'll see that in, in your output and your performance. Uh, once again, that's not easy. You know, it, it's not easy if you have some self-doubt and you have some fears and insecurities. It's not always easy to have positive self-talk, but that's why something like counseling can help lead you and give you the tools to be able to do that. As far as mental toughness, uh, I define mental toughness as the ability to focus on the next important thing, regardless of circumstance. There's an acronym that I didn't come up with, but I don't know who the original author is. It's called WIN. W-I-N, what's important now? And, and I really believe that that is the sign of mental toughness, that no matter what is going on around you, no matter what is going on within you, you can focus on the next most important thing. 
And once again, very easily said, not very easily done, but a perfect example to exercise that is right now during this coronavirus, where we don't have very much control over what's going on in the world. We don't have very much control over our circumstances, but we can focus on the next most important thing. And that next most important thing might be dinner with your spouse, or it might be uh, playing a board game with your child, or it might be a Zoom meeting you have with your sales team, or it might be doing a set of push-ups. Whatever the thing you're doing needs to be the most important thing to you at that moment so that you can give it everything that you've got. And that's where that, that concept that you mentioned earlier, be where your feet are, comes from. That's the definition to me of mental toughness is the ability to be in the present moment. Mm-hmm. And so almost what it comes down to a lot of what you're talking about is discipline. And I'm really interested in this point of view because it's something I'm really trying to work on in my own life. I don't feel very disciplined in a lot of ways. And I think working from home has kind of shown me that a lot more because working from home, you're in a completely different environment. You're totally up to your own control of how kind of productive you are, which has been hard. And then there's obviously the layer that, you know, all these people are losing jobs. Am I next to go? There's kind of this internal anxiety about it. There's, I can't go to the gym. Not that I was really going to the gym before. I'm not in the best shape. It's so much easier to go down to the fridge and just eat whatever food there is. And so I'm really trying to grow in discipline right now. Kind of what is your attachment to discipline and like, what are your opinions on it from a whole? Because even I've watched your video with Kobe Bryant getting to the gym at four o'clock in the morning, and he's a superstar on these fundamentals. Like, what is what is the impact of discipline in your life? Sure. Well, discipline plays a major role in my life. And, and keep in mind that uh, just because I've gone through a couple of years of therapy, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a medical professional. I know sometimes in my conversation, I can sound kind of therapist-y. And the one thing that I would say to you that, that kind of stuck out to me is uh, you started what you just said with the phrase, I'm not a very disciplined person. And, and that's where you have to realize that's the self-talk we're talking about. Like if you believe in your head and your story is that you're not disciplined, that just means it's that's much harder for you to live a disciplined life and show discipline because in your mind, you don't believe that's you and you don't believe you deserve that. And I'm not a guy that says you should wake up every morning and look in the mirror and say, I am disciplined. I am disciplined. You know, that's, that's phony. But over time, I think if you start doing some small things, you get some small wins every day that do show you you can be disciplined, then maybe that mindset will change. You know, maybe you'll, you'll think of yourself as a disciplined person. For me, discipline plays a huge role. You know, I, I think it's very hard to achieve anything of note. And I'm not just talking about performance or success. I think it's hard to be truly happy and fulfilled if you don't have certain disciplines. Part of discipline is not what you say yes to. It's also what are you willing to say no to? And do you respect yourself and your, your time enough to protect it so that other people can't steal uh, or siphon your time from you? You know, for me, the, the, very two, the, the two things I do every single morning are make my bed and I do a 10-minute guided meditation on Headspace. Both of those things are very small acts of discipline, but they get my day started in the right manner. I start my day with a small act of discipline, and then hopefully things on top of that can build. And also realize, too, that discipline can live in different silos. You know, I've, I've grown up in sport and athletics and health and fitness. So when it comes to working out and eating right, that's just been easier for me. Like, I'm more disciplined in those areas. 
But there have been times in my life where I've, I've had very poor financial discipline. Uh, I've had very poor discipline in relationships, you know, so this is not a everybody's perfect, you know. Overall, I consider myself a pretty disciplined person because for the most part, barring a few exceptions, I do what's right and I do what needs to be done regardless of how I feel. And, and to me, that's what discipline is. It's, it's doing the right thing even when you don't feel like it, even when you don't want to, even when it's not convenient, it's making good decisions. And, and that takes practice and it, it takes time. It'll be a cumulative effect. So for yourself, what I would say is, you know, find a few things that you can do that would make you feel like you're being disciplined in those areas and, and just commit to doing those. And when you fall off or you mess up, don't, you know, don't beat yourself up over it. Just know that you do have the potential to be a disciplined person if that's what you choose to do. Mm -hmm. I think that's wonderful because Roman actually gave me the same answer in terms of like he makes his bed every morning in regards to like that one small act of because I was discussing with him kind of the same topic as I try to understand how discipline works. Um, but he's like, I just make my bed every morning and, it, and it's like that small win and it's almost like that snowball effect to a successful day. But even like removing or I guess separating your emotions and doing what's hard, like I think that's something that, you know, we're, we're taught as men to kind of do that for our entire lives to be stoic, but it's really a process to be stoic. And it's really a process in understanding that even though you're stoic or you, you set aside your emotions, that doesn't mean you're not addressing those emotions. So I guess, how do you kind of address those emotions while moving through them at the same time? I heard something the other day and, and, this wasn't terminology I was using before, but I've since stolen it because it, it, it brilliantly articulates what I've been thinking. And that's our emotions are designed, they're designed to inform us, not to direct us, which means the emotions that we feel at any moment uh, is simply data. You know, it's just input. We don't have to act on those emotions. You know, there's nothing wrong with feeling angry or disappointed or anxious or frustrated, but you can create some major problems if your behavior is a result of feeling those things. So what I've learned to do over time, and it takes practice, and some days I'm pretty good at it, and some days I'm not, is I've learned to become a spectator to my own emotions, where I can, in kind of a stoic point of view, I can step outside of myself for a moment and go, okay, I'm really angry right now. Why am I angry? And let me, let me get to the real root cause of it. And then the next question is, okay, how can I use this anger in a positive way or a productive way instead of something that's destructive or moving me back? So if you can create the, the patience and have the emotional intelligence to welcome all of your emotions and feelings, but don't act on them, I think that can be incredibly helpful. And like anything else, it takes practice. But I, I think, you know, a, a perfect example, you know, the alpha male barbaric mentality of, you know, you're, you're out and somebody bumps into you and your immediate reaction is to get pissed off and want to get in a fight. And many people would actually consider that very masculine and tough. And I don't, I, I think that's one step away from being a caveman. I think bumping into someone and thinking, you know what, I'm angry right now because I feel disrespected by this person. And that doesn't make me feel good. However, What's a, what's a way that I can display that or rectify this situation that will actually move me forward? And that's where hopefully you know, cooler heads would prevail and you'd come up with something better than immediately taking a swing at that guy or something like that. So to me, to be able to have the emotional intelligence and patience and poise to be in full control no matter what goes on is really a sign of strength. And you know, one of the most common, uh, I think, examples of this is road rage. And, and how infuriated people get when they drive. 
And it's like, wait a second, you're telling me that just because someone cuts you off in traffic, that you can go from zero to a hundred and get that worked up and that angry and it can ruin your day. Like you're so weak. If that's, if that's the mental makeup you have, how come you don't have the, the, the mental and emotional strength to just scuff that off and just say, Oh, well, you know, I guess that guy's in a hurry or ha ha, that person doesn't know how to drive. Like, I can't believe you'd, you'd give your power away to someone else and let them control you with such a, a frivolous act. So, you know, I've made good progress in those areas over the last couple of years, and I certainly still have work to do, but it's such a freeing experience. You know, I will say there are very few things right now that anyone could say or do that would rattle me or get me frazzled. Like, I'm pretty, pretty level, and, and I think that's a, you know, I, I think that's a good thing. Even this massive crisis going on in our world right now, you know, I, I definitely had a couple of days where I was a little down in the dumps. I was a little worried about my own speaking business and so forth. But after that, I felt this serenity of there's nothing I can do about this, but I can choose an emotional response that's going to help make me a better person. And that's my goal. My goal is to get out of COVID-19 as a better version of myself. Yeah. And I think that's the goal that everyone should have. And I think that's a fantastic way of looking at it. And I love what you said about giving your power away because funny enough, I think road rage, I try not to, but I, like whenever I drive that, that's probably when I get most angry in my own head. Like I'm a very calm, level-headed person like outside of it. But when I drive, like I find that that's where a lot of my anger can come out. I always know that when it, whenever it happens, it always comes back to me because I didn't give myself enough time. I'm now in a rush to get where I'm going. I don't I don't like being late, but I never give myself enough time. I don't give myself the 10 extra minutes. And so I'm like, it's not their fault. It's mine. And now I'm frustrated with them that they're going the speed limit and I want to go around them or whatnot. So that's one thing I always try to remember is that it's, it's always my fault. I was in control of what I was or what I should have been in control of and I didn't decide to act on it. And now I'm getting frustrated because of this situation. Absolutely. And, and another tool, and again, I'm not the, the person that thought of this mindset, but for all you know, that person that cut you off in traffic just got a call that their child was in an accident and they're racing to the hospital. You know, I think we'd all give that person a little bit of slack and some compassion if you knew that's what they were actually doing. So why don't we just assume that everybody that wrongs us has good intentions for why they wronged us because something bad is going on in their life and it takes a lot of the sting out of it. And for me, you know, uh, uh, life's just too short to let those little things rattle you and frazzle you. I mean, again, I'm kind of a type A. I, I don't have a tremendous amount of patience in my hard wiring. Uh, I do think someone that doesn't use a turn signal on some level is an idiot, but it doesn't, it doesn't do me any good to actually let that change my emotional state or for me to even vocalize that or voice that, you know, that's their journey. If they don't wanna use a turn signal, that's on them. And if someone not using a turn signal can change my emotional state, then I am a weak, weak person. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm interested by how you describe weak, because I think that's totally true. And, you know, a lot of the time when we're talked about, we're talking about masculinity in today's age and what is an acceptable version of showing it, we're told that, you know, crying is something that we should be allowed of men, but also we want this stoic person who's able to kind of navigate the waters very well. And so I'm really curious on how you see crying or how you see weakness in terms of male performance, because there's obviously tears of joy, there's different types of tears, but I don't think the only response to like I don't I don't see crying as the only way to show sadness I don't see like that is the only emotional state so I'm guessing like what it what is your sense of emotional strength when it comes to being stoic and how you can still be masculine in that without showing tears 
Sure. And, and I do want to kind of correct my previous statement. I shouldn't have said that someone that, that if you allow them to change your emotional state, that you are a weak person. I should have said in that, in that moment, you have a weak mindset. I think that's more fair. I, I don't want to label someone as weak because that's no better than, than any other labels that we've been putting on. But in that moment, you've displayed a very weak mindset if you've given your power away on something as basic as a turn signal. Like if you're going to give your power away and get rattled, it might as well be for something colossal, like losing a loved one or, or a major sickness or, or losing a job. I mean, I still think you should have the mental makeup to persevere over even the most extreme cases. But if, if you're going to give your power away, let's not give it away over a, a missed turn signal. As far as the concept of crying, you know, I think emotional responses are highly individual. I don't think there's a one size fits all. I think that's part of the problem is we've had this male stereotype that if you are a male and you do cry from sadness, that you're weak or you're not manly or whatever, and that's a one size fits all. I have lots of friends. Some are much more emotional than others. You know, I know for me, I mean, I, I can watch a movie and I can actually start to tear up because it brings me to emotion. And I don't think that makes me more or less uh, masculine than anybody else. But if you were watching the same movie and it didn't make you feel that way, then once again, I don't think there's any room for us to judge. I think everyone should have the right to process and showcase their, their emotions and feelings in any way that they choose that's not putting it on to somebody else. So once again, if I get angry and I do something like hit you, that is not an appropriate display of my anger because it's now affecting another person. But if I get angry and I choose to just go, you know, lock myself in my room for 15 minutes and do some breathing exercises until I calm down, then I, I think that's part of my journey and that I should be, I should be allowed to do that. That's part of how I cope with that feeling. So, you know, crying is an interesting one. Yeah. I, I don't think it, it means one thing or another. I think whatever, whatever it feels most natural and feels most therapeutic to you is probably an appropriate response. Mm -hmm. And then I think that's so true too. And, and in terms of your breath work and meditation, you talked about doing, you know, you wake up and do headspace, but what is the power of breath, like breath work to you? How has that allowed you to kind of slow down and react, react in like a responsible or I guess um, way that's authentic to you? Well, that's really what it's done. It's the, you know, at, at the time of this recording, I don't know when you're going to actually release this, but this morning was my 998th day consecutive day of doing the Headspace meditation app. So in two more days, I'll hit 1,000 straight days, which, which is kind of cool. And each singular meditation practice doesn't necessarily do a whole lot. It's the culmination of all of them in a row that start to build that muscle. And what it does is, for me personally, it allows me to start my day in a more mindful, grounded, aware, and present state. So instead of, you know, it, it, let's just look at two typical scenarios. Scenario one is what I do believe a lot of people do. They wake up and the first thing they do is start checking email. And they're, they're once again, talk about giving power away. Now you're kind of giving your power away to whatever's in your inbox. And if five people send you emails that you know, or irritating or frustrating or asking you to do something, you, you've kind of started your day off with a little bit more chaos than maybe you need. Whereas with something like Headspace, you start your day in a much more grounded and aware manner, which I think then sets a foundation for whatever's going to come after that. And, and to me, that's what's in, incredibly important. It's, it's the practice of it. And even with that, you know, even with a thousand days under my belt, some days 
I'm very in tune with headspace. You know, my, I'm in sync with my breath. I can clear my mind. And other days I'm like a squirrel and the 10 minutes goes by and I don't even remember what happened. So you're still going to ebb and flow, but it's the practice of it of being mindful and aware and getting back to present that I think is helpful. And, and I know without question, you know, over the last three years that I've been doing that, you know, I mentioned earlier that it would take a lot to rattle me or frazzle me right now. And I think a lot, a good portion of that is due to kind of the headspace and the meditation and just being centered and poised no matter what's going on. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think that's a wonderful thing because even for me, you know, I wake up and the first thing I do is check my phone and, and no, I'm not in like a position that's high enough at work or anything like that to really get like bad news on a, on a very like common basis. But if you are like a VP or a CEO and the first thing you see is there's a reactionary thing where it's a crisis you have to manage, obviously your day is going to be kind of shifted by that because you have to address it. And I've, I've seen a lot of powerful people kind of say that for the first 30 minutes of their day, for the first 45 minutes of their day, they don't even look at that because they don't want to be in that mindset for the rest of the day. You kind of talked about, about servant leadership earlier too. And I think like that is something that has, has kind of shifted the emotional intelligence of a lot of people and, and men. And like, I, I think that a lot of it can kind of be contributed in my head to women being more involved in the workplace, because I think there are a lot of those feminine characteristics that are, are more emotionally intelligent or they're allowed to be more emotionally intelligent. I'm not sure, but like, that's just kind of like my theory on it, but kind of what does servant leadership mean to you and, and how come so many people have made that shift recently in your head or like, why do you think it's become so much more prevalent nowadays? Well, the, the best way I can describe it, you know, if, if you're a CEO and you have a hundred people that, that are on your team, you don't have a hundred people that work for you. You have a hundred people that you work for. And I think that's the mindset of a servant leader is I'm not worried about the org chart. I'm not worried about titles or positions or corner desks or anything like that. I'm worried about serving my team and doing everything I can to empower and support and uplift those on my team. And then certainly serve if you're in a business, you know, your clients or your customers or patients or members. So it's all about servanthood and filling other people's buckets and doing everything you can to lead them. I mean, ultimately leadership is just the ability to have a positive impact over somebody else's behavior. And I think that's what a servant leader does. I know for me, you know, I can only speak from my vantage point, you know, it feels good to serve other people. Like it feels good to fill somebody's bucket or do something of value for someone else. So as much as you are doing that to serve the other person, it does come back to you and give you a sense of fulfillment and, and so forth. And, you know, I know for me, the biggest shift I made when this coronavirus hit as I mentioned, the first couple of days, I mean, I, I was a little shook. I was really worried about my own business. And the, the remedy for that was I got outside of myself and I just started focusing on how can I be of value to other people? Because if I can find a way to help other people, then it takes my mind off of worrying about my situation. And that's, that's helped tremendously. So I stopped worrying about my own speaking business and thought there's a lot of other businesses out there that are struggling. Is there something I can do to help them? Because if I'm helping them, then I'll feel better. And, and that works tremendously. Yeah. And it's like that instant shift in that, you know, especially if you're focusing on your happiness, like if, if serving people makes you happy, um, it's, it's a lot of that kind of selfishness or, or not even like bad selfishness, but like taking, filling your own bucket first so you can fill other people's bucket as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's a really powerful message too, that can kind of be lost sometimes is that if you're serving other people to fill their bucket, you're still serving your own, you're, you're still filling your own bucket as well. I think that just comes naturally with servant leadership and with, I guess, 
servancy from a, from that standpoint anyways. Yeah. Well, well one thing I, I think is very interesting, I mean, I still use the term servant leadership, but on some level over time, I do hope folks realize that it becomes redundant. I mean, to me, a leader should be a servant leader. We shouldn't need the word servant to preface it because I don't think you are a leader if you don't have that servant mentality. Uh, it's also another phrase we use all the time, especially in parenting or in coaching is tough love. When you're honest with someone and you're direct with them, uh, we call that tough love. And it's like, you don't need the word tough. That's actually what love is. When you love someone or something, you're willing to be completely honest and open and transparent and vulnerable. We shouldn't, we shouldn't need those words to interact. I mean, I, I just don't think you'd actually be a leader if you didn't have a servanthood mentality. Yeah. No, and I love what you said about tough love too. And and I think my parents have always kind of said similar things. And, you know, I've always had this, this thought in my head that just because you love someone doesn't mean you're going to agree with everything they do. That's not what love is. That's what, you know, just kind of, that's what almost the opposite of love is, is, is not allowing that person to grow or working them with them through their growing. Because, you know, if your parents... If they, they, they love you and therefore they discipline you, it's not they discipline you and that's not part of love. It's they, they go pretty hand in hand in terms of how we grow as individuals. Yes. Discipline and accountability are forms of love. I think that's how you show someone you care about them is when you hold them accountable to the highest standard possible. Mm -hmm. And then I kind of wanted to go back into the, the basketball side of things. And, and obviously you've, you've kind of coached a lot of young men through other journeys, through it with, through camps, you know, a college basketball stars, high school basketball stars. Like, do you see your, or I guess, was this a common thing in, in your practice as a coach that you saw yourself beyond just a basketball coach, but also like a life coach, a role model? Like, how did you kind of envision your impact on these young kids and, and men who are, who are kind of growing to be basketball players and stars? When I first started, you know, I really thought my job was to get players bigger, faster, and stronger. As I matured and got older and improved my emotional intelligence, I just realized that was kind of the canvas at which I painted. My real job was to be able to teach them intangibles like work ethic and respect and mindset and be a role model. Uh, and that was one of the reasons that I actually preferred to stay at the high school level because I felt that I could make more of an impact on off-the-court stuff with high school-age kids than I could at any other any other age. I mean, for the most part, you know, if you, you're a 28 year old pro, you know, you're pretty firm in your convictions of what's right and wrong and good and bad and the way that you do things. Uh, you're not near as, imp as impressionable as a 14 or a 15 year old. So for me, uh, I did try to look beyond the court and thought that working with high school kids, I could be a role model. I could teach them a lot of these off the court principles and mindsets that, that would help them in every area of their life. Uh, so that was why I preferred to stay at that age. Yeah. And I, I think that's fascinating that, that you, you said that because those are like really the, the years where there's a lot of shaping of, of these young men. And sometimes they don't come from the best circumstances where they have those male role models or, or role models in general. Kind of, do you still see yourself as a mentor to some of these people and, and players that you had? Like, are you still a part of their lives? Like how, how satisfying, I guess, has it been to be a servant leader for 14, 15 year old young men, and then still be an impact on their life. Cause I still remember some of my grade nine teachers, grade 10 teachers being way more impactful than my university teachers. So I'm really curious to see like how that's kind of built you out to where you are today as a human. 
Oh, most certainly. In fact, that's probably one of the areas that I've, I've deemed the most satisfaction and fulfillment is not just seeing them matriculate up and become really good basketball players. That's nice. And, that, and, and I'd be lying if I said that, that wasn't cool, but it's also seeing the things that they've been able to do off the court and, you know, seeing them have their own families and the way they, they handle themselves during press conferences and the way they, you know, all, all of that stuff. Because many of them, even when they were 14 or 15, they were pretty good basketball players but they didn't necessarily have all of those other tools yet because what, you know, there's not many 14 or 15 year olds that have high emotional intelligence. I certainly know I didn't have it, but to see that area of growth is always really cool. You know, to see a kid who's at 14 or 15, you know, be very introverted and incredibly shy and not very social. And then 10 years later in the NBA, you know, being on national commercials and, and holding press conferences it's neat to see those areas of growth. And, and I just look at myself with all of them. I was just one little piece to the puzzle. You know, I was just their performance coach. You know, they all had so many other people that were incredibly impactful in their life. And I'm just one little piece of the puzzle. Those guys would have all been incredibly successful had they never have met me, but I'm glad that they did. I'm glad that I did. And I'm glad to just be a little piece of their puzzle, you know, in their final mosaic of their legacy. I think that's pretty cool. And, and I will say too, to a man, every single one of those kids that I trained in some way, shape or form taught me every bit as much as I'd like to believe I taught them. Yeah. And I actually just read something about that because I've started to read a lot more during this whole COVID situation too. But I read somewhere about, you know, if, if, if we learned that we learn just as much from our, you know, whether you're a therapist, I think it was a, it was a psychologist who was, whose book it was, but she's like, we learn just as much from our clients and our, and our the people that we give therapy to as we teach them. Like it, it's always a give and take of knowledge. And if you're not giving and taking that knowledge, then it's really not a very beneficial service and, or, or you're not looking at it in the right way. Like just how you said the mindset has been wrong. I think if you're not seeing how every person in your life can add buckets or like, you know, you look at children and you see their, the joy on their face that what you have when you're, when you're 40 and you're like, Oh, I wish I had that childlike joy right now. Like that's a little thing. Like it's, it's these little moments that we see that really allow us to to appreciate the little things in life that we learn from everyone. So I really liked how you how you touched on that too. But I wanted to kind of ask uh, one last question before before we uh, get on the way to to kind of wrapping things up, I guess. And and one of them was in terms of the importance that you see men like LeBron, Steph Curry, like really poignant men first that are that are almost seeing their their off the court lives as more important than their on the court lives, you know, with shut up and dribble, getting involved in politics and whatnot. How do you see that impact on the future of men with with Kevin Love, you know, DeMar DeRozan opening up about mental health that we kind of talked about earlier? Like how how far and how much of an impact do you see that having on the current generation of like growing basketball players? Oh, it's been huge. And I think the reason it's it's huge is you know, young players look up to them and idolize them. You know, my kids look up to LeBron James and KD the way I looked up to Bird and Magic and, and Michael Jordan and so forth. But what's really neat, what we've shifted the landscape is anyone has the ability now to build an audience and build a following through, through social media. So everyone technically has a platform. And I think what they're teaching everyone is you have to be responsible to your platform. Your platform might only be 100 Instagram followers, but that's a hundred people that are following what you say and what you do. And it's very important that, that you live a life of, of high value and high principle and you live a life, uh, 
in the seen and the unseen hours that are in alignment with your belief system. So I think obviously a guy like LeBron is a global sensation. You know, hundreds of millions of people follow his every word, but he uses his platform responsibly and he uses it in a way to champion the things that he's most passionate about and that he believes in. And, and I think that's a great precedent to set for everyone else. And I hope that young people watching go, okay, I don't have a hundred million followers. I do have a hundred and I want to make sure that I'm championing the things that I believe in and the causes that I think are most worthwhile and that everyone uses an opportunity to have a platform the, you know, to improve the world and improve things socially. Yeah. I just think it's so impressive what they're doing. And I think basketball has really taken the reins on male leadership in a lot of ways. Even if you're talking about Hollywood, the, you know, football, the NHL, the baseball, I, I just think basketball is at the key point and peak of really showing what maybe just under hip hop would be like what a man is. I think those two really go hand in hand in, in, in regards to really showing what men are. And that makes me really proud to see people like that having an impact, you know, being really well known. And even though they get the hate for maybe they're on the court play, you know, there's there's obviously those rivalries that still exist, but no one really can really say what LeBron James has done with his uh, I Promise School and whatnot. Like if anyone is able to just take him down for that idea, I'm like, who's here is at fault for for that and so i just think it's a beautiful thing to see that idea of manhood and masculinity be taken taken such shape in uh i guess in the world and i mean you you've been part of it as well so i, I really want to obviously shout out you as well in, in that process and then that development thank you but uh, I guess my last question would be, you know, in regards, you've worked with the greats. You've worked with Steph Curry, LeBron James, Kevin Durant, Kobe Bryant, or, or at least met them. Kind of what would be three pieces of advice that you'd want from, you know, your experiences with them, whether it be leadership, vulnerability, authenticity, you know, parenthood and masculinity. What would be kind of three takeaways you've seen from working with them about how men could be better every day? Takeaway number one would be it's all about respect. Uh, respect yourself. And, and this is talking about those guys in particular. Respect yourself, respect your body, respect your mind and what you put in it. Uh, respect your teammates, respect your coaches, respect the officials, respect the fans, respect the game, respect the process. Like those guys have very high respect for themselves and everything that's around what they care about most, which outside of their families is the sport of basketball. Uh, the second takeaway is those guys never get bored with the basics. They understand that the fundamentals are the key to being good at anything. The fundamentals in basketball are shooting, passing, rebounding, defending, and handling the ball. But in, if you want to be good in any area of life, you have to figure out what the basics are and the fundamentals, and you have to work towards mastery during the unseen hours. And then the last thing is, while you want to be an incredibly confident person on the court, you have to have a, a, an air of humility and vulnerability to allow yourself to be open and to be coached so that you can allow someone to push you to be better than you currently are. And that if you're closed off and you already think you know everything, that you're going to cease to grow. And I think those guys have lived out those three principles. And I consider those three principles being in high alignment with what I believe it means to be highly masculine. Yeah. Beautiful. And then, you know, Alan, I, I like to give a couple of minutes at the end to kind of promote yourself and say what you got going on, where people can find you, uh, where they can buy your book. Uh, I know I'm going to buy a book as soon as I can find it uh, or hopefully when it comes in, like when shipping is, is faster. But, you know, use this time now to promote anything about yourself that you want to get out there. 
Sure. Uh, if anyone is interested in the book, they can just go to raiseyourgamebook.com. Uh, it's available audiobook. I did the read. It's available on Kindle or hardback or paper, uh, paperback. Uh, my main hub is just allensteinjr.com, and I'm at allensteinjr on all of the major social platforms. I did, talking about trying to be of service, I did put together a page of free resources, a ton of free videos and downloadable PDFs, and you can get that just at allensteinjr.com backslash free. And uh, yeah, I hope everyone finds that stuff helpful. And it's been wonderful to speak with you, man. This was a lot of fun. Yes, it, it really was. Thank you so much for, for coming and joining and, and being so open about, uh, you know, your divorce, your co-parenting, just all the experiences that you've had and, and how you've really grown as a man and individual. And I really think people are going to find a lot of value out of this conversation. And I definitely recommend everyone that's listening to go to his YouTube as well. Is it just Alan Stein Jr.? Yeah, YouTube backslash Alan Stein Jr. You got it. Yeah. And there's a, there's a hour long keynotes there that I've watched or skimmed through and, and they're just phenomenal as well. So I definitely recommend that everyone go check out those resources as well. But Alan, thank you so much for uh, joining me today. You got it. Have a great one. Thanks, Luke. Thank you everyone so much for tuning in to another episode of the Imperfect Pod. This was a really cool interview with someone who I admire and just their work ethic and performance. You can follow him on LinkedIn at Alan Stein Jr. You can find him there. You can also follow him on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Alan Stein Jr. Jr. just J-R, not the word and name spelled out. Um, he posts a lot of positive content, a lot about meditation, a lot about just being positive in your day-to-day -day life. I always smile when I see it come up on my screen. So I, I hope that you find some value out of this conversation and, and go follow him and find some value out of that as well. He's one of the most friendly men I've ever talked to. You can go watch his keynotes on YouTube as well. Amazing content. I really hope you enjoyed. Feel free to check out his book and podcast, which I'll link in the description box below. Thank you, everyone, again, so much for tuning into this week's episode. Next week's episode is Eric Everhard, one of the world's top male porn stars ever. Um, so that's going to be a really interesting conversation. Make sure to subscribe, follow, leave a review so that you're notified next week when that episode comes out. You can message me on Instagram at The Imperfect Pod, as well as connect with me on LinkedIn at Luke West to reach out to me, share some kind words, or just tell me about your thoughts about this week's episode. Thank you everyone so much for tuning in and I hope you look forward to next week's episode about pornography in the industry. I think that's a really fascinating conversation that a lot of young men have to have with themselves with broader society and we talk about the pros and negatives about the porn industry and, and a lot more uh, of a critical take than one might think. So I hope you tune in and, and to that episode as well and thank you everyone so much and I look forward to uh, having you listen again. Thanks.